everyone, and welcome to the Justin Insight podcast. Uh, for regular listeners, they'll know that this is a show where we usually sit down with people in the alternative music world and talk about their journey through it. But we're introducing a new feature, potentially a recurring feature. I'm trying this out for the first time, see how it fits. If you guys dig it, we'll be doing it on the first of every month. But this is the first of our new new episode features, I guess. We're going to be picking albums that have been coming out in the last couple of years, sitting down with the artists that made them and going track by track, finding out a bit more about the themes and stories behind those songs, uh, whether it be uh, personal stories about said songs, whether it be studio stories, um, and how those songs came to grow and be on the records that we now love and hear and hold dearly. So yeah, this is track by track. Um, the first album that we are going to be going track by track um, with is Transitional Forms by the band Sharptooth. So yes, Sharptooth are a hardcore metalcore band from Baltimore, Maryland in the United States. Uh, they formed in 2014, um, were kind of local darlings in, in some aspects, and then put out a couple of EPs before releasing their first full-length Clever Girl in 2017. Uh, off the back of that, they were then signed to Pure Noise Records, did various sort of support slots with uh, bands such as Knocked Loose, Census Fail, Less Than Jake. Um, I came across them when they came over to the UK and did a tour with uh, Comeback Kid and was very, very impressed with them and, yeah, were immediately put on my radar. Um, and then earlier this year, they put out their, their second record, which has been received hugely to much critical acclaim transitional forms which is the record that we're going to be talking about um so yeah i had the opportunity to sit down with vocalist lauren cashin to dig a bit deeper so let's go track by track so my name is lauren cashin and i'm the vocalist of sharp tooth Uh, so we recorded Transitional Forms with Brian McTernan, who has worked with a, a whole slew of other <laughs> artists that, like, I low-key worship. Like, he's, he's the, like, half of your favorite records from, like, the early 2000s were recorded by McTernan. Um, he did Scary Kids, Scaring Kids. He did um, Census Fail thrice. Um, he, like, yeah, a lot of, like, the artists in the ambulance, um, there's, like, his discography is absolutely unreal, and then you get into the studio with him, and it's like, oh, this absolutely makes sense, because this man is brilliant, um, so we recorded with him at his studio, uh, Salad Days studio in Baltimore, Maryland, and that was in, like, March 2019, 2019, yes, March 2019 through April uh, was when we were working with him. And I knew when we started working on transitional forms, which was pretty much immediately after we wrapped writing Clever Girl, um, Lance and I pretty much were churning out creative material constantly. Um, so we we already had a ton of like 
instrumental concepts kind of raring to go right after we'd already finished Clever Girl. So we didn't waste a lot of time <laughs> uh, getting started with writing new material because it, that's exciting and that it's fun. <laughs> so um, I knew kind of like going, like this was the first time we'd ever recorded an album with, uh, with the expectation of recording an album essentially. And what that means to me is that like, when we wrote and recorded Clever Girl, we were just like a local band doing, just making an album because we wanted to. And this was the first time that I've ever been in a situation where like I'm on a record label and there's an expectation of like an album being put out. So there's a lot more, uh, <laughs> so like, you know, you're going to be making that piece of art. So the gears start turning a lot earlier. Um, basically once you like, okay, now we have to, now we have to do this all again. Um, and once that became like part of like in the cards for us, like, oh, we have to, all right, we're on the hook for another album. Uh, I knew pretty much immediately that I wanted it to be like a, a vaguely conceptual album. Um, and that kind of took shape over the course of the following two years because we wrote the record kind of in like Lance basically sends me songs and I kind of just start putting stuff down on them and that's usually how we start like a record is what we'll get like a few tracks kind of like that like under our belt and then start like planning the actual recording process and then writing more with the anticipation of that but the songs that I had started writing all felt like very deeply personal in nature and I knew that I that what I wanted to tell was like the story of my just my experiences in over the course of those like two years and so kind of just went from there um and so transitional forms is essentially a story about you know my experiences as existing as a marginalized person um and my personal journey through like like different idiosyncrasies with like mental health and my my place in the world and my place in my community and the way that these like microcosms kind of extrapolate out to the world at large and the ways in which a lot of my personal experiences are reflective and representative of a lot of the personal experiences of a lot of other marginalized people so that was kind of my that was the goal I think in writing this record was I wanted it to be personal. I wanted it to tell a story and I wanted it to tell a story of like the, the arc of the last like two years of my life. Um, but I wanted to be using my story to dig down into even more themes <laughs> in regards to being a marginalized person that don't get talked about enough um, in our music scene. So yeah, it was like a twofold um, approach for me and what would you say either personally or just for the band in general what was the biggest sort of change and step between clever girl and trust digital forms I, I feel like the intentionality honestly uh clever girl was essentially just like they were just songs that my band had been writing and then we put them together added in like maybe like two or three more to flesh out an album length piece of work mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, Clever Girl is a collection of songs. 
um, transitional forms to me is an album. And those things are very distinct um, for me because an album for me, like there's a definitive through line um, to an extent. Uh, and the way that it was arranged and all of the components of how it was written were a lot more intentional and deliberate and like not in a negative way, but like calculated going, okay, well now I have the opera, I'm going into this with the expectation of creating a larger overarching piece of work as opposed to, oh, I'm just writing a song. And those are two really, really different mindsets to be approaching like a concept because you have to be keeping in mind when you're writing, okay, so where does this fit in with the rest of the story? What, like, what can I be tapping into in this song that I haven't in other songs? Like, how can I make this feel cohesive with the body of work as a whole? And having the opportunity to think in that framework while writing the entire thing was awesome. Um, I'm such a sucker for anything that's like, feels like it has like, like interweaving threads that come back into one another. I mean, I'm a writer, so like, I, I love a story. I love something that tells the story and you can follow the journey and getting the opportunity to write an album like from that place was just really awesome. So, and just in terms yeah. of recording itself, like what was your experience in the studio? Like, as you say, kind of going in with this fleshed out concept, was it kind of daunting to put that onto record or was it something you enjoyed? It was both. It was, writing this was one of the hardest things I've ever done, like from an artistic standpoint, um, because it is like the the record itself has a lot of content that is extremely personal and dark and like uh for lack of <laughs> a better term uh like fucking gut-wrenching um so but it was stuff that felt therapeutic to be um like getting out of me and putting out into the world and so there was definitely there was a massive therapeutic aspect to writing this record it was also insanely challenging uh, for a litany of reasons when I was writing, when we were writing and recording. Um, so we'd written probably about like 70% of the record when we went into the studio. And then um, over the course of like the few weeks that we were in the studio, I finished writing like the rest of the songs. Uh, so we went in with some pretty fleshed out stuff but there was definitely a lot of songs where I knew the story I needed to tell. Um, and the biggest challenge was kind of getting out of my own way to be able to tell it. Um, Cause like, oh my God, when you're like writing a record and there's like so many expectations and stuff kind of put on it, you just sit there and you're like, I'm the worst. I'm the worst at this. I am like, everything I do is trash. You write a whole, like you'll write like two verses and then you just like stare at them and you're like, no one will like this. This is the worst garbage that's ever been created by people. Like, and then you come back the next day and you're like, oh, I was just beating myself up and this is actually, this is like totally fine. Why would I, why am I sitting here beating myself up about this? This is perfectly good writing, it's fine. Um, so it was a, it was really, really challenging because it also felt really important to me to be able to express like certain things um, in ways that felt like both authentic and healing and also 
got into some incredibly nuanced concepts. Um, something that people uh, like would talk about a lot in regards to Clever Girl was the way that I wrote my lyrics and the fact that they are like very, very blunt and explicit. And uh, I would get like panned for that a lot. And to which I kind of am like, well, if I wrote with ambiguity, you would misconstrue what I'm saying because it's convenient for you to just intellectually, to be intellectually dishonest and misconstrue the things that I say. I have that expectation going into almost anything having to do with this music scene, frankly, is that people will try to misconstrue my words. People will try to warp what I have to say to make it sound like edgy or like inflammatory. Um, because that is their expectation of who I am as a person, <laughs> as a woman in metal. It's like, oh, she's big and aggressive and scary, so she's mean. Like, uh, I'm very used to navigating that stupid dynamic <laughs> and not being taken at face value. So I've had to be really careful my whole life about the way that I say things because people will make, make you out to be terrible no matter who you are or what you do if they don't like what you're doing um so I felt that pressure in writing Clever Girl uh like hardcore that I need to be extremely explicit because I'm writing about nuanced things and people will use that as an opportunity to make like make it into that I'm saying something I'm actually not um to try to like vilify the left or vilify feminism or whatever um people will warp whatever you say and do to fit their agenda. So that's why writing really explicitly felt so important to me. Now on this record, writing this record felt like it was a little bit more for me, um, like personally and emotionally than writing Clever Girl was. Uh, this was an opportunity, yeah, to write a cohesive art piece that I had never really gotten the opportunity to do that like with intention before so it felt really really important to me to be able to do this in the way that I wanted to and in some ways that includes like pretty like explicit and blunt lyrics but in other ways I've gotten a lot more comfortable with the fact that there's gonna there's always gonna be people who want to misconstrue what I'm saying or try to make it into something it's not and those people are just are just like bad faith players like they would do that no matter what I say so I've gotten a lot more comfortable with writing more ambiguously for the purposes of lyrics because there's always going to be people who have a problem with what I'm doing and I'm not going to compromise my art anymore to try to like convince those people that I'm worth their time or that I'm like worth listening to because if you've already kind of set yourself up in your head that you don't like me well why am I trying to convince you otherwise <laughs> like eh, I got I got shit to do I'm too tired to like care about that anymore so yeah it's been interesting <laughs> intended to be the opening track for the album and I believe if you actually um I believe on our vinyl it is in the like so basically long story short uh <laughs> welcome to 
the future where streams really, really, really matter and records and like your album really kind of doesn't. So there's a lot of pressure to put like the first song on a, like on a track where it's gonna come up on your Spotify to be like the ass beater. And that wasn't the first track of the record. The first track of the record is Life on the Razor's Edge. Um, and it is in that order on the vinyl actually. Um, so I was adamant about that. Uh, I was pretty adamant about that, that there had to be a physical format of this record that had the songs in the order that I thought told the story the best way. I don't have an issue with um, like the digital formats and stuff having say nothing first. Um, that makes sense from a music industry standpoint. And I'm like fine with it if that's like the first thing that somebody hears when they open the record in a digital format. That's probably, that's likely somebody who isn't like a longtime fan, hasn't like been as engaged with us, doesn't necessarily have the physical copy. But I wanted people who had the physical copy to be able to have the story kind of in its intended format. Um, but so yeah, uh, Life on the Razor's Edge is technically the first song on the record, but say nothing. <laughs> I'm, as, I'm totally fine with that being like the opener because it kind of gets right to the point <laughs> and, um, and I'm here for that. And uh, I mean, a lot of the, the feelings that I'm expressing on this track uh, kind of carry through the whole record of just addressing the hypocrisy of a lot of people in our society, including in the hardcore metalcore scene. So that is what Say Nothing is about. It's about the fact that we are playing music in a genre that was based in punk music and nobody wants to say a goddamn thing of value anymore. And in terms of like lyrical structure and musical structure, obviously I want to talk about the, the end of the song in a moment, but in terms of like how you kind of put things together, you kind of touched upon it earlier with saying like Lance and you kind of back back and forth. But with this track specifically, did you have the fully fleshed out music before you wrote the lyrics to it? Yep. And the uh, so and this is kind of usually how things will work is that Lance will write a song and send it to me. And then I will put lyrics to it and then we'll do, there's like an amount of back and forth. If I'm like, oh, I really need a section that does this because I have this lyrical idea that I want to do. And we'll, we'll do a bit of that. Um, yeah, but for the most part, it's he sends me a track and I take my, take whatever concept is bopping around in my head and just start putting parts of it in there and seeing what happens. <laughs> Uh, for that song, yeah, I wrote the end first. <laughs> and so in terms of like the the actual lyrical content, as you said, it's kind of like the basis of it is around like being in this scene that is based in punk, but people don't necessarily address that or other wider issues sort of thing. And I'm kind of going off on a bit of a tangent here, but obviously the, the video you did with it as well kind of, mixes that with sort of like pop culture and, and things like that so was that like kind of all part of the overall concept of of it when you had it in your head writing it um what I, what I had in my head writing it I like was thinking about like all of the idiosyncrasies and like hypocrisies of our of our music scene um a lot of and I 
when I knew that I wanted to do a music video for this song, like right out the gate. And it became really clear to me that I, the video I wanted to do needed to just highlight these idiosyncrasies in the most loud and in your face way possible. Um, and I also knew that for the video, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be kind of like reclaiming some of my own identity as like a really feminine person um, that I think that I had lost um, specifically due to the toxic masculinity in metalcore and hardcore, um, just feeling pressured to not present them, not present like super girly because people don't take you seriously or people say that you're just at a show to fuck the bands or that you're just there because you're someone's girlfriend. And so that was a part of my identity that I kind of had to like tamp down on or turn my back on for a long time. And I wanted to be able to reclaim that through the genre that took some of that away from me. And so I, yeah, I love mainstream pop music and specifically very girly mainstream pop music. Uh, that is a, just a part of me and I absolutely love it. Um, and one of the idiosyncrasies about metalcore and hardcore that I cannot wrap my head around is like the aggressive panning of, you know, things like, I don't know, like Kesha or Taylor Swift or whatever. Um, and the, the treatment of mainstream pop music as being like vapid or like mindless and only an aesthetic when quite frankly, I think that the metal and hardcore scene is a lot more of those things than any of those female pop artists. <laughs> because at least with pop music, there's no, like, you're not getting bullshitted about what it is. It's supposed to be bright and colorful and, like, and ostentatious. And it isn't taking itself too goddamn seriously. <laughs> Meanwhile, in metal and hardcore, you have an entire music scene full of people who won't admit that they're there mostly for an aesthetic. Like, let's get real. Hardcore and metalcore have become so much more of a fashion show, I think, than a lot of genres have ever been. But the problem is that nobody here is kind of willing to admit that, like, that's what this is kind of turned into. Um, and I was actually just talking about this the other day. Um, like, one of the bizarre things in specifically the punk music realm is, like, kind of how anti-flag is treated as being, like, a corny band, um, which makes no sense to me because I think that they're one of the only punk bands that is actually doing, actually being punk and doing like walking the walk and not just like making a Twitter post to, to check a clout box or to check a woke box. Um, and I cannot wrap my fucking head around the way that metal and hardcore and punk in the last few years have like very truly like become the posers that like everyone was afraid of being in the scene in the first place. Like the people who are just there because they think that the, that the style is cool. They don't want the substance. 
And that's kind of the whole problem, I think, with uh, with alternative music today is that complete forgetting and rejecting of people's roots and the like the claims that like you don't want to politicize like that kind of music. I'm like, I got news for you. That was kind of the whole point when these genres were created and you showing up and saying that people being earnest and having a lot of give a fuck is corny is the actual like antithesis of what punk and hardcore is supposed to be. So I don't know. I just like, I think about the emphasis that people in our music scene put on like your Instagram pictures or like, yeah, like being a certain aesthetic, like the fucking like e-boy thing or like the e-girl thing. It's like, are you here because you like the music? I'm sure you are, but like, are you? Or is this just another high school click that just has a louder and scarier soundtrack? Because that's how it feels a lot of the time. And just in terms of like you mentioned earlier about sort of having your words kind of misconstrued and please correct me if I'm wrong in in this but obviously in Say Nothing like some of the lyrics do come across a little kind of tongue-in-cheek and obviously specifically the the beat down at the end kind of thing so I don't know like was that an intentional way of kind of getting that message across is almost kind of presenting it in a funny way yes absolutely I like because, I mean, you go to fucking shows and you see these bands, they play a set and they, they act like the words that are coming out of their mouth are profound. And they're not. <laughs> You're not saying anything. Like, you can't get on stage and go respect women in hardcore and then, like, go and, like, slut shame your girlfriend's best friend for having an OnlyFans, which is, like, the shit that I see 24 seven in this music scene um so I just I can't hang with that level of hypocrisy <laughs> I just can't and like I think that you know making making a mockery of things is a way of drawing attention to the ways in which they are absurd and frankly I think that there's like in this music scene that I love there are a lot of things that are absurd and ridiculous and that don't make sense and so i'm gonna make fun of them <laughs> until <laughs> until like things change and like there's different approaches to drawing attention to things and there's different approaches to um yeah like spurring change and frankly i think you need a mixture of them in order to have any amount of success um and sometimes that's pointing out the ways in which things are ridiculous and that like we should be laughing about this because it's very, very silly. Um, and there's a lot of really, really serious things that I talk about in my music. Um, but the bullshit toxic masculinity and jock posturing of metal and hardcore is one of the funnier things that I can make fun of. <laughs> it is. It's like, it's like, cool. Like, this is the most profound part of the song. It's coming up. It's the part where you can hear the vocalist the clearest because there's less noise behind her because it's the breakdown and she's saying nothing. And that's how most shows feel a lot of the time is like, 
like this is like the most it's like this is the heaviest part of the song and blah 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 and but nothing actually is being said like cool you yelled you fucking bitch wow so profile <laughs> like shit like that and i'm just like this is art like why how is this art <laughs> i don't have how is just yelling like, you fucking bitch <laughs> in like a song that has six lyrics art I just, it's, I don't, you know, and I'm not here to tell people how to write songs or what metal is supposed to be like, or what hardcore songs are supposed to be like. You want to yell six words and it's, and it's like four seconds, like, hell yeah. Um, but like, holy shit, please don't pretend like what you're saying has value when it doesn't. Like, just own it, just own your shit. Like, you want to write a silly song, write a silly song. Don't get up there and try to act like you're making a difference in the world when you aren't saying anything and the only thing you actually care about is what bands are on everyone's t-shirts. Like, I'm sorry. And just on that sort of specific, like, end bit, like, breakdown, obviously, you kind of put the nail on the head there, like, this sort of, the build-up and, like, nobody saying anything, and obviously your lyrics are exactly that. But in a sense, uh, I'm not being critical here, because I've Thing is fucking brilliant but you can totally be critical like you're cool with that i'm here for it but like obviously the irony is that that is the bit that people will be losing their mind at so when you were writing that i don't know like was there kind of a conversation of like are we being too on the nail or were you just like fuck it um i think <laughs> i have done in in my like kind of approach to this i've spent so much time um hemming my like thoughts and ideas and concepts down um to avoid criticism or to so that people will like me or so that people will know that i'm nice and i'm not i mean i'm not mean i thought i'm not mean like i've spent so much fucking time doing those things that uh say nothing felt like my like time to go yeah fuck all that i'm gonna do what i want <laughs> and, and like yeah and there's it's like to be fair yeah i'm totally like mocking motifs in a scene that like my band does like these things like my band has like breakdowns and like you know and like people mosh at our shows this is like it's not like i'm like this outsider being like look at this strange species and the things they do like this is my world <laughs> So that's like, and so I feel like in being so deeply entrenched in that, like we're the people who have the most like room to like point figures and be critical because we kind of understand how a lot of these things work. Um, so yeah, no, it was, it is very intentional and like with the, like the knowing not of irony of like, yes, we do this too. Like, this is just kind of how the genre, <laughs> this is just kind of a thing here. Um, but like, you know, you can push people to do better while like still being engaged in the thing. Nobody does things perfectly. I think that that's kind of a, like, and this is a little bit of a sidebar. I think that that's a problem like in today's society is that people say, hey, if you aren't doing a thing 170 million percent perfectly, you didn't do it at all and it doesn't have value and it doesn't matter. And that all or nothing mentality is worthless. Like, it's just worthless because that's not how anything works or that's not how the world works. Um, it's like people saying that, like, you have to, oh, well, we can't, like, 
fix the government like we'd have to get rid of it entirely it's like well okay yeah i would love to do that how practical is that how practical is change like within a framework you can't always just destroy the framework that's not always possible so sometimes you have to be inside a thing to be confronting the thing and sometimes you have to be doing some of the things that you think are silly or are like I don't know, are contributing factors in order to be able to even reach the, the inside of that thing in the first place. Um, like you can't go to a, <laughs> you can't infiltrate like a Ku Klux Klan meeting, uh, like not dressed as a KKK member. <laughs> and not to say, not to like compare like the hardcore scene to the KKK or some shit, but it's like, you know, the people who are within a, within a framework are the most uniquely able to speak to the, the positives and the benefits of it and the downfalls of it as well so um and there's parts about it that i that like i also love like i love like anyone in my band will tell you that like we like we love a good pit and we love good slams like it's fun but don't give me shit for trying to use fun framework things to like actually do something decent in the world and that's really where the issue lies for me is you know, y'all don't have to say anything, whatever, you do you, but do not fucking come for the bands that are trying to say something. Do not try to label us as corny or lame or like uncool because we have any amount of give a fuck. Like, you mind your business and go on saying nothing, it must be nice. We don't have that luxury because a lot of us, our rights are being threatened on a daily basis. So we have to be loud and we have to be annoying. It must be nice to not be. It's like, I genuinely mean that. It must be nice to not have to think about these things. Um, and that's like, that's why it is a interesting song because it is very nuanced and it is very complicated. And that is kind of the theme of the record is that everything is complicated. Nothing is black and white. Everything is super nuanced. You can belong to something and be critical of it. You can like agree with something, but not agree with all of it. And I think that that's kind of the core ethos of, of transitional forms as a whole. Um, I think that one of the funniest things in the goddamn universe, um, are, do you know anything about what happened when that song was released? No. This is funny as shit, okay? <laughs> so this is, this is like, this is, I'm not a spiteful person at all, but this is some schadenfreude that I just thought was great because it only did good things. Um, so we, the, the week leading up to us announcing the, dropping the video and announcing the record, um, we did a bunch of interviews with like a good friend of ours, like a hometown friend of ours who has like an online persona. Uh, a really ridiculous online persona of uh, the world's greatest mogul. And he, this, imagine a man who looks like Andre the Giant in a pink velour robe. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> in the craziest sunglasses you've ever seen doing interviews. And that's him. It's his bit and it's fucking hilarious. Anyway, we were doing like joke interviews with him all week, like just for fun, like leading up to the record. Uh, our drummer did an interview with him and our drummer is like, doesn't take anything fucking seriously, which I love and is great. <laughs> um, 
And this was just about the least serious situation you could have been getting an interview in by a man who is shirtless and only, and looks like Andre the Giant and is wearing a velour robe. Um, and like, they just were like saying like absolutely stupid shit. Like, oh, he was like, oh yeah, Chartreuse, like I only joined because they paid me a hundred K a show to drum and shit like that. Uh, just like the most ridiculous crap and like ludicrous and very, very silly, especially like if you know anything about metal and hardcore, which is that nobody makes any fucking money. It doesn't matter who you are. <laughs> um, anyway, a bunch of people on hardcore Twitter, I guess, saw the interview and took it seriously. Oh, dear. And took it seriously and proceeded to try, I guess, to make us the laughing stock of Twitter by sharing it and being like, this fucking poser gets like, who the fuck is this loser who gets paid 100k a show and blah 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 it's like you thought that was real do you know anything about music have you even talked to a band ever because i got news for you no whole band is like making that per show like that's like not a thing <laughs> let alone the drummer for for some rando feminist band from baltimore are you kidding me like so they took that and they basically like went around like the internet sharing the video and like talking shit on us, uh, claiming that we have to pay our drummer a hundred K a show. And I, and uh, the hilarious thing was, so I was like, fine, talk shit on us, do it. And then the next day we released the video making fun of the hardcore scene for taking themselves too motherfucking seriously. Brilliant. Yep. And <laughs> because they had, because like so many people were trying to bully us the day before we were trending and we got exponentially more exposure for the record release announcement and the video than we ever would have gotten. So it's like, thank you, assholes. <laughs> you just helped us. opens up with the sample so what was the the choice of of the sample and where does that come from um so there's like it's like an old like camp song like a like a little children's song like nobody likes me everybody hates me guess i'll go eat work that's like a it's like a little sing-along song for like nursery rhyme type of thing um i always heard it like as a kid and when I was writing Mean Brain, I knew Mean Brain uh, needed, literally needed to be about my brain talking shit and being mean to me, uh, which I think is an experience that anybody who has anxiety or depression or just has been through life has been in experiences where your brain is just like talking shit and is just telling you, you can't do that. You're not capable. No one likes you, blah, 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 blah. And how insane that is because you would never talk that way to another person. So why the hell do we do that to ourselves? And it's almost like a, like, it's almost like a little child in your head, like saying those things. It's almost like a part of you that just feels like very scared and terrified and like doesn't feel cared for. And so I was thinking about like the nature of like the nursery, nursery rhyme thing along with like those childlike parts of you that don't feel good enough and don't measure up. And I like knew that I wanted to have 
like just the clip of like little kids singing in the beginning. So my friend, uh, I have a good, one of my good girlfriends, her daughter is five and her daughter loves sharp too. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And uh, so she <laughs> likes to climb like on things in the house, which I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry <laughs> that your child does this because they came to a show one time. Uh, so she likes to like climb on like tables and chairs and uh, yell, dead men tell no tales, dead men toss no shit, <laughs> which are clever girl lyrics <laughs> because that's a thing that I do at my shows. And uh, I really, really wanted her to get to be on the record. So I had her mom secretly record, uh, like, be like, hey, I need you to sing this. And then we put it on the record. And then when the song came out, I sent it to them. I was like, you need to surprise her now. <laughs> so, yeah, I just know that like loop of that literally nobody likes me and everybody actually hates me. Um, nobody really wants to be my friend. Like, I can't, like, it doesn't make sense that I have any friends. That's like, that's like a loop that just goes sometimes. And in acknowledging the like insanity of that and like realizing that like what's happening is like, this isn't, these aren't true things. This is literally your brain being mean. And that is just how I would refer to those times when I would be like talking like with my friends, my friends and stuff is we would refer to like, I'm having like a mean brain day. Like I just need like extra support or like you just clarify your like. I, I just need to talk to somebody because I feel crazy. My brain's being really mean. Like, and so that's, I just was like, well, mean brain, that's got to be the title. And just on that, because obviously like, it's very clear that this song is about sort of like, as you say, those uh, intrusive thoughts that go through like your brain and things like that. And there's one, one lyric that I picked out was, um, why noise to the tune of your own self hate, which I think is very sort of like that sort of it in a, in a nutshell sort of thing. So, for you personally obviously having to like experience these things as well as as you've mentioned is something that loads of other people do but like obviously you're a person in a focal position so was it difficult for you to kind of tap into that and be so open and honest with it it isn't really i guess if i think about it too much it like can be um <laughs> i'd be like oh shit uh but i think like my and like I think it is important to kind of know like your strengths in life and like mine mine is vulnerability and like just kind of putting everything out there because for me and kind of like my like the paradigms in my life and in like my psyche being understood and understanding others is a core thing to like who I am and we can't understand each other or connect with one another if we're not honest. So, and also like, I just don't, I don't, I just kind of wear everything on my sleeve. Like if I'm happy, you know, uh, if I am sad, you know, I'm not somebody who really has a poker face, <laughs> whether that be like socially or in music. Uh, if I wanted to be worried about like appearances I probably wouldn't be doing hardcore metal for honestly. <laughs> um, it just doesn't seem to, that's not, this isn't where I go to be polished. This is where I go to, to vomit out all of the pain and suffering and terror that you've lived through. Like hardcore metal for like an exorcism for me. 
and that shit's going to be messy. He's <laughs> like, it just is. So, but like, uh, you know, in playing music, you learn pretty quickly that the more messy you are comfortable being and just more open, the more connection you get from people. Because, you know, if I go on stage and I'm like, I'm perfect and everything in my life is perfect. Like people are going to leave that show and go like, that was wildly unrelatable. Like, cause it is. <laughs> it be like, that was strange. And like, it, it will feel fake. Like, I don't know. I don't really have it in me to put on airs or anything like that. So anything that's kind of coming out of me is going to be, it's going to be raw and it's going to have some edges and it's going to be pretty messy. But those are the things that whenever I write about them, people get the most excited about because they feel that way too. So, yeah. And obviously we've mentioned before, like the, the intro of the, um, of the sample and then obviously when the track comes to its conclusion those words are pretty much repeated again but through your voice so again like was that an idea that was there from the beginning when you asked your friend to to record her daughter or was that something that kind of came did the sample come first or did that come later do you get what i'm trying to say the idea for the sample came first the lyrics for the breakdown then came and then I said, we have to actually do like the sample. Um, so I knew that I wanted lyrics that reference that song. And then I was like, let's just put the actual lyrics into the beginning too. And I also love it because that ending like is one of my favorite things I've ever recorded. Like as a vocalist, it is like one of my proudest moments uh, because I get to really stretch my range and you get really you get like you get the highs and you get the lows and that was kind of the first time I'd been able to show that off on a record which is really exciting um and I wanted it to I really wanted this song to be capturing like those feelings of like innocent terror and like those like scared child feelings along with the enormity and like massiveness of like the pain of feeling them and that's what those big like the big gutturals and the really shrill highs are like that's how that felt for me is that like it feels all consuming and it feels like it's many sources of those feelings and like I wanted that to be just a giant like swarm onto your brain um sonically so that was the ending <laughs> and in terms of that like you said kind of way this was an opportunity for you to sort of test your range so to say and because you have got quite arranged to your scream it's not all one tone sort of thing thank you when you're going into something i don't know like specifically on this but do you think of how it's going to sound when it comes out or do you just kind of not word vomit but do you just shout and see what happens kind of thing it's very intentional it is all very planned um and usually a lot of like the, so like a lot of times, like I'll kind of go, like you go in anticipate like, okay, I'm going to be screaming this part. And then once you start writing it, you start figuring out what you want to do dynamically with your tone um, and being like, oh, like this could make this part more interesting or like this could add more like feeling to this part. And you start figuring out some of the, you like have a couple of those ideas usually initially, but those will generally end up getting fleshed out when you're recording and you're just doing takes. And because your brain is just sitting there focusing on that one part of the song and like how it can be better and 
how it can be distinct from other parts. So the more like when you're just like either in the studio doing runs, a lot of times there'll be like a, hey, I want to do this here. Um, can we try it? Or Brian would make recommendations all the time, which was awesome. Um, like having a fresh set of like ears to like throw an idea out there at me for me to try. And he, it was great because he, him and I developed like a really good relationship and he got a really good grasp of like my capabilities. So he got really good with suggestions and like really effective and smart ones um, that made like the song is more like interesting and dynamic. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's a combination of just like stuff that you start also, like, when you're practicing the song, sometimes you'll just start doing a thing kind of automatically, and then it just, you're like, okay, that's the way that I do it now. I have a few songs that we've been playing for, yeah, songs off of Clever Girl that I've changed the way that I perform them over time just because I have, and because that's just what's naturally happened, and I like it, so. Um, so that happens, too. Um, and we had some of the songs on the record that we were playing before we recorded it that I got to do some of that with in real time, like in a live setting. Um, so that was really cool. And then there were others that like I've kind of since added to even though they're recorded. You've already mentioned life on a razor's edge was obviously intentionally meant to well for physical copy is the first track of the song but i'm going to take it from unfortunately i don't have a physical copy as of yet totally cool. but we'll go with the streaming version so the question i was going to ask because you've got these two really intense songs that kick off and then life on the razor's edge kind of brings things down so i guess when you were looking at forming it in the streaming format was this placed purposely to kind of bring things down? Um, yes. And like, it wouldn't like, I mean, the, the following song is pretty aggressive. <laughs> so it does, it does make sense to have um, that when, yeah, when you are starting from up here, you definitely, you need to have dynamics in the way that the album moves between songs. Um, it would have been, it like wouldn't have made sense, I think to put, I don't know, say, to put Life on the Razor's Edge, you know, later than that. Like, that would have been, like, oh, we have, like, three really high-energy songs, and then it did, like, so pacing for an album is super important for me, and that seems like the most effective way to pace the album comfortably without having that song be the first song. Um, because, yeah, it offered a little bit of those dynamics of, like, super high energy okay and this is a little bit more reflective of a piece and then this is like coming back up um I've noticed records feel lopsided when they try to do like too many bangers in the front or in like so that was I mean that was one of the reasons I put it like first first because it really to me does feel like the introduction the the opening of a thing the like it feels like the slow build um and so that that was my intentional approach was the slow build but having it as a respite from two songs i think is, is effective as well so things don't always have to be exactly one way to be effective in your storytelling too so and in terms of that because you mentioned obviously on the physical it is the first 
song. And you mentioned earlier, obviously, it's it fit more with the, the narrative and the storytelling. So can you yeah. explain what you mean by that? Like, how does it kind of open the story of what Transitional Forms is? So um, I think it kind of sets uh, the stage of like what the record is going to be about, um, just like lyrically. Um, and I also especially wanted it as it, it, it feels like the opening chapter to me, just in the same way that we will obviously get there to nevertheless, nevertheless feels like, nevertheless feels cohesive with Life on the Razor's Edge. They feel like two like bookends to the same work um, and they have some sonic similarities um, and uh, motifs in them that I reference in both songs. And it's, it is very intentional. Um, so with Life on the Razor's Edge, it like opens with uh, basically me talking about my experiences in like, connecting with others, connecting with myself and the like the idiosyncrasies and parts and nuance of that that are painful and struggle and like are traumatic to deal with. And for me kind of like the biggest one. Um, so I said like I, I pushed for purpose to see what I would find, kept you at arm's length but found no peace of mind. Um, relinquished hold on connections I create with my intentions, I will decide my fate. Um, I think that there is a lack of deliberation in which we move through the world for a lot of people. Um, and I think that it could behoove, I think any, everybody to sit down and kind of take stock of like, not even just like, what are your goals and stuff? It's like, who do you want to be as a person? What are your values? What are your core, like the core things that make you the person that you are? Um, and like build your life and your actions around that instead of just doing and then trying to figure out who you are in the context of that. And so that's basically what Life on the Razor's Edge is about. It's about a, like intentionally exploring like yourself as a person and your values and the world around you and the ways in which it relates to that and like how all of these threads kind of intersect. Um, I like really believe that whatever is going on like inside you as a human being, uh, you will see reflected like in the world around you. And when you work to fix the world around you, you simultaneously work to fix yourself and vice versa. When you work to improve yourself, you work to improve the world around you because of the way that you will be interacting in it. Um, and for me, a big part of that is, um, so there's the lyrics, um, if love is the answer, then why does it cut us so deep? When I open up, tell me, why does it bring me to bleed? Uh, greatest asset, biggest weakness, come, come cut me open. I want to believe this. I have to believe this. For me, that is about the experience of, yeah, just living honestly and vulnerably, like kind of like what we were talking about earlier. Um, saying like, okay, it, when you are a honest and vulnerable person, when you are your core self and give the world access to that, um, it can be damaging and traumatic, but I don't know how to live any other way. So how am I supposed to walk that line of protecting myself 
while giving the best of myself to the world around me. And that's basically what that song is about. And if it's even possible, um, which is, I think, what the record is kind of about. Mm. And you may, may not be necessarily able to comment on this, I don't know, but because the phrase, like, on a razor's edge, as you say, is, you kind of mentioned it there, like this kind of balancing act sort of thing. So have you had people kind of have different interpretations of this? Because as you mentioned earlier, like, you kind of want to be as matter of fact as you can with, with what you're saying. But for me, this is kind of open to interpretation for the listener. So is that kind of another aspect to it? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I wanted, I wanted that, um, especially from, especially for something as like deeply personal as life on the razor's edge. Um, I want people to be able to tap into like things in a song that like, you know, my journey is not going to be the same as anyone else's, you know, then whoever, like, I don't know, it's just like one random person, like their hang up in life isn't going to be their own personable relationship with vulnerability. <laughs> um, so I wanted a little bit of ambiguity in that because everybody has their own, like their own personal, like internal paradigm struggles. And like, I wanted you to be able to feel those, like the feelings of feeling understood and validated in whatever your specific one is. Um, whatever razor's edge you're trying to walk on, um, whatever balancing act that you're trying to do and trying to parse through um, in like figuring out how to be a human being. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I like just don't want for people to be able to like relate in the way that they need to in the way that feels authentic to them. So, and also like with specifically like, and I'm not sure if this is also kind of what you're referencing in like the imagery, of it being a razor um, is at least somewhat significant um, in just how like deep and intense and painful like a lot of these feelings can like feel that if you like push too hard you end up cutting yourself like it brings you to bleed basically um, and that you have like there is so much care that you have to use in navigating like difficult and painful conflicts like that. The thing that I kind of want to touch upon straight away is the intro is a little bit different to the songs we've heard previously. So it's just purely guitars and drums that come into it before anything else is brought in. Again, was that kind of a, a conscious effort from the band wanting to sort of, because I think through we'll talk about, but throughout the album, like there are these weaves rather than it being linear. So was that something that coming out of life on a razor's edge that you wanted to sort of, say, okay, we're bringing it up again, but we're not going to just punch you straight in the face kind of thing. Yeah, that song ramps. Like, I mean, especially, like, there's, like, that faster middle section. And, yeah, I think that it, it fits really well with the pacing there because it does bring it back up. Um, with Yeah, without it literally just, like, beating you in the head with a shovel, <laughs> um, which I think is more the more like say nothing. Um, <laughs> So yeah, nope, I was pretty specific. And in terms of like the the song, so for for me, it kind of almost feels like two songs put together in terms of where the break comes into it. Was it 
initially meant to be that or was it always one song that came together it was always one song and it that's just kind of like how it ended up working out with like the writing of it um i wrote that song like fairly quickly too um i don't know that was like there's some songs that just kind of uh that are long painstaking and like you want to put your head in a meat grinder uh songs because and this song was not one of them um this just kind of like fell out and we were like okay cool we're about it like it like into it so yeah i i had a lot of pretty specific uh, like i had written so much material for this song specifically that putting it all together was pretty easy and pretty fast to be fair though i do so this is funny i write like i don't always write like just on the track like i will have stuff that i pull from other things i have written um and like not usually large components that i'll pull into a song but like phrases and stuff like that and this this song definitely is an amalgamation of several different pieces um that all have the same subject matter because sometimes you got to be real mad about one specific thing and write about it a bunch. <laughs> well, that's was going to go be sort of like my next question is that even though like each track does have like a specific thing that it seems to be addressing, like obviously I can't speak to this subject matter, but this does seem to be something that you are most personal with in terms of, I don't know, it feels like your most aggressive performance in the record. I'm not saying that the rest Thank of it is not, but... <laughs> This is like the one where it feels like your song, if that makes sense. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's definitely, uh, this song doesn't really, uh, it's funny because yeah, it is much more, it's much less of a, here I am talking about like this lofty overarching concept. And this one is like the, the very like base level, uh, fuck you, Petty. I haven't ever felt allowed to do that or like comfortable doing that. And that felt like a very important, significant, like powerful, uh, like thing for me. Here's, here's some, here's some petty for you. Uh, especially cause the person, the, there are many people who this song is about, but there is a person this song is about. Okay. And this person specifically told me never to write a sharp tooth song about him. So I wrote two. Um, <laughs> because fuck you i was like here do you want do you want to know that this trick to not getting a sharp tooth song written about you don't do shit that sharp tooth would write a fucking song panning you for <laughs> oh and you don't get a song it's amazing <laughs> and obviously like the the closing line of the song is very sort of poignant and i think it's one of those things like I've known people that are in that position that of like, yeah, just sort of. There's so many. And that's why I'm like, this song's about a person, but this song's about a lot of fucking people. Because it is. That's such a motif is like dudes thinking their adjacency to feminism or to feminist activists makes them like completely absolved of like having to do any work. And that's not the case. And in fact, the more adjacent you are to like 
mean to like feminists and activists, like we're gonna hold you to a high standard. So do something. Don't just go on Facebook and make a Facebook post about it while ignoring all of the women in your life who need like you. Um, just like shit like that. Or people thinking that like actual, like feminism is post is like canceling people on Twitter. And I'm like, that isn't what feminism is. And that doesn't count. And that doesn't make you an activist and it doesn't make you someone who cares about women. Um, you need to do more than just be adjacent. And just to, on like the kind of overarching sort of like feminist theme of it, because obviously like in the grand scheme of things, Sharptooth is still a relatively young band within sort of the, the hardcore world. And unfortunately, or fortunately, what way you want to see it, because of your position in that band, you're going to bring in sort of young female fans, which is great, but it's also going to get that tag of, it's a woman in a band sort of thing, which is a double-edged sword. But because the lyrics in this song are so upfront, do you kind of, I don't know, like take a responsibility of like, especially when you have like young girls coming into the scene, being so blunt and saying like, yo, look out, these people exist kind of thing. I feel that responsibility like through the core of my being um to the point where i am not happy right now with the with like my personal reach and like the work that i've been able to do lately in like helping to keep women in my music scene and my community at large like safe um it, it it's so it is weird because there's there is that dynamic of hey uh like just so you know, half the people in this music scene are like kind of rapey and really problematic. But also this music is powerful and this music has like healed me in so many ways that I know that other marginalized people need because you can't, you don't go through life as a marginalized person and not have anger that you're carrying. And if we don't have an outlet, like, that comes out in shitty ways and in our own like in our in groups and that needs to not be a thing like marginalized people need outlets for our feelings it can't just be the fucking straight white dudes are allowed to scream and be mad like we're allowed to scream and be mad too and unfortunately this is it sucks because it's like yeah i want i want to make the scene have more representation i want to be more accessible on the other hand, this scene has so many problems. Do I actually really want people like joining? And so, yeah, it really is a double-edged sword of, okay, I really want to give people the opportunity to participate in a, in like a safe, positive outlet for really strong emotions and to find the community and healing that I found here. But also I need for these people to be safe. And I need for these people to know that not everyone has the best interest at heart and not everybody is authentic or genuine and you need to protect yourself. And at the end of the day, any of the problems going on in metal and hardcore are a reflection of the problems going on in the world at large. So I feel very, very, very personally responsible um, for protecting young women and like, God, 
Sharp Tooth fans, I swear to God, are the most pure, wonderful human beings in the universe. And I want to just take all of them and adopt them and take care of them forever. Um, so yeah, it, I'm in a weird, really weird position. And it does, it, so it feels imperative that I'm loud about these things because I don't feel comfortable bringing people into a situation where they don't understand the dynamic and where that dynamic could potentially make them not safe. So yeah, uh, I haven't been happy lately with how much I've felt like I could talk about, um, especially like a bunch of, like lately there have been a bunch more outings of people in the music scene. And because I've been actually taking a, in a boot camp for the last three months, I haven't been able to talk really publicly about a lot of those things. And um, I'm currently in the process of scaffolding out a, a web application actually to try oh, to cool. help more to try to help warn people about like actually actively dangerous people in the community. And so that's in the works. We'll update when I'm further along with it. That's cool. For every question, every shade. With the gray, I think this again, from my personal point of view, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is probably the most like, obvious in terms of themes of what it's talking about i mean it's there in the title sort of thing um but kind of talk me through a bit more about because obviously everything in life isn't black or white it is this kind of shade of gray so as i'm guessing that's essentially what you were kind of trying to get across for me the song is just about nuance and it touches on kind of some of the specific areas in my life where I have experienced a lack of nuance where it was where that was like damaging. Um, and I think there's a lot of areas in in the world where a lack of nuance and a and a discomfort with ambiguity has caused a lot of damage. Um, a great example, I think, is our partisan political system is that we have become so you're either like red or you are blue that we lose conversation and we lose the ability to talk to one another and come to actually rational conclusions that make sense for actual people and not just ideologies and ah there's so there's just so many so many pitfalls with thinking that things are either or when they're almost always and. And for, yeah, so whether that's in politics or um, a big one that I thought about was mental health. Um, that was what was kind of going, what a, an experience that I was having in writing the song um, is, are like thinking about like the ways in which we treat mental illness in our country and the ways that we, like the whole concept of diagnosis is like really interesting to me um, because there's, that's one of those things that, you know, you talk to anybody and it's like, oh, you have depression or you have bipolar or you have dementia. Like there, there's a lack of acknowledgement of the ambiguity of what any of those things are and the fact that any of those things are just collections of symptoms. Um, so, and that many of those things, there aren't, there's not like a pet 
like a definitive yes or no test. It's you have the symptoms of this thing. And I think that a thing that happens sometimes is we pigeonhole ourselves in the realm of our mental illness. We think that uh, we're like, oh, I have depression, therefore I am depressed in this moment. Or I have uh, like, or I have like, I don't know, whatever. I have ADHD, therefore I am hyper in this moment. And I think that a lot of times those mental boxes we put ourselves in shape and frame our behavior rather than allowing us to just be ourselves sometimes. Um, I think we get stuck sometimes in that. I think that there is an amount of getting stuck on a diagnosis and not allowing yourself to move forward or not allowing yourself to heal, um, like actually heal. And I'm not saying like, oh, like you could get diagnosed with depression and say, well, I don't actually have that. I only just have some symptoms. I'm not getting treatment. That's not what that means. I think that there's, there are certain, there are certain things that uh, we are told are permanent uh, conditions that are not. Um, and that's the thing I think that a lot of people also don't understand about mental health is that we are so unbelievably like it, out in the middle of the woods with psychiatry and psychology. Why those fields are so fascinating to me is because there's so much left to learn and there's a profound like we know i think more about space than we do about our own brains or like something to that like something to that effect honestly um it's it's like either we know more about the bottom of the ocean than we do about our own brains or shit like that um we don't fucking know how our brains work but one thing we do know is that our brains are constantly changing and so giving people permanent diagnoses and framing them as immutable conditions that are not changeable, treatable, endable, like grow out of a bowl is bad. So, and this is a soapbox of mine. And like, if somebody wants to come for me, like you absolutely fucking can. Um, the whole fucking concept of like, if you have ever had a substance abuse problem that you are a permanent addict for the rest of your life is not based in science. And I just want anybody listening to this to please go and fucking research that. I'm so fucking sick of hearing people I know going around saying, I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic when you haven't drank in 20 years. So I don't, I fail to see how you are actually experiencing the symptoms of alcoholism. Um, same goes for addiction. Newsflash, if you like fix your underlying mental illnesses that are contributing to your drug and alcohol use. That's how you fucking fix that shit. You don't fix it just by going around saying that you're a drug addict for the entire rest of your life. Um, and there's a lot of other things that fall into those categories too. And I'm so fucking sick of our society not actually looking at any of the signs surrounding it. It is a hang up of mine. I can rant about that for hours. <laughs> Bullshit. It pigeonholes people and it gets them thinking about themselves in ways that are not accurate and are not true. And whether that's, oh, you have depression, therefore you have to be depressed for the rest of your life. That isn't accurate. <laughs> like, that's not accurate. Your brain literally changes. You might get, you might start improving because circumstances in your life are improving or you're getting proper nutrition for your brain to be producing the right chemicals. Like, 
a thing and something that I am really excited about. There's two things that I'm really excited about in this realm that are happening. Uh, the first is uh, that there is people are starting to kind of get woke to the fact that uh, the way that we handle mental illness in our culture is can be damaging and that we are not doing enough to consider the ways of the impact of trauma. And long story short, people are starting to kind of figure out, oh wait, shit, basically everything your brain does is caused by trauma. And isn't even, and like that genetic components for a lot of things are not as important as we thought they were. Um, and that when conditions on the outside of a person change that that can produce positive outcomes that aren't necessarily related to a medication. Um, spoiler alert, I'm actually a huge proponent of medication and I love the medications that I take, but like, that's what I'm saying. Like there's so many factors influencing the shit your brain does and saying that just because you have experienced like whatever three symptoms that you have a thing, it's like, but that isn't a thing. It's not a thing that's marked by a genetic marker. It's just a name for a bunch of symptoms. We need to start thinking about mental health in those terms because I think that then we get a much more accurate picture and it gives people agency and when people have agency and they feel capable of getting better that's when they fucking get better if you tell people that they are powerless to change you tell people that they are powerless to get better you tell people that their condition is permanent and that they there's nothing they can do about that they don't fucking change they don't get better because you've told them they can't you've told them they just have to deal and adapt, and that's not accurate. That isn't healing, and it isn't accurate, and there isn't science really that supports that. And I'm, I'm so sick of anti-science in this goddamn country. The other factor, and I'll keep it brief, the other thing about this that I think is so important is the changes that we're making in the ways that we approach treatment, whether that is via medication, or via medications that we have historically decided aren't medications because of bullshit like racism and Catholicism and shit like that, which is psychedelic drugs. I am a huge, huge, huge proponent of psychedelics as therapeutic components and in people's psychological healing processes. I am so, so, so grateful that that is changing and that like, there's places in this country that people can do research now to actually help people. Like people are going to get better. People are going to heal because of this and have better lives. And I'm just thrilled about that. So thank you. That's like the gray is frankly, what I think is the most important song on my record. It is the song that I put the most of myself into, and it is the most personal song I've ever written. Um, and it is about literally rewiring my own brain. Um, so, uh, I'm very passionate about that song and all of the little weird things about it. Um, I think you've pretty much wrapped everything that I wanted to ask about that song up, but the one other component that I did want to mention is just for a fle fleeting moments in the song, you do go melodic and it's specifically on the phrase black and white answers, which I think is very poignant and specific. So, Obviously, anyone that's heard of your band before knows that there are previous melodic elements to it, So, but not so much this time around. So why did you want to bring it in here and why this specific song? What's also interesting is that uh, you will notice that the three songs that have those melodic elements, and I might be 
Well, I sing in 153, but it's kind of different. Uh, but like the three songs that have those kind of quieter melodic elements, similar to the black and white answers in the gray, are Life on the Razor's Edge, Nevertheless, and the Gray. Um, and I, those, that specifically feels like the opening chapter, the turning point, the final chapter. Um, and those songs are the, mo are the three, like some of the most like very, very, very intimately personal songs on the record. Um, and that sonic choice of like very quiet melodic parts, not even, because it's not like singing, it's like very drawn in like, like a, mel a very, very small, like, it, I wanted it to feel very close in. I wanted it to feel like the conversations you have with yourself inside your head. Um, and like, and just like those like little moments of like where you're talking to yourself and you're parsing through things. Um, those aren't like loud or big moments. Those are always very quiet and small ones, but those little tiny quiet and small ones are so often where we like, learn things about ourselves or change and things like that. So I wanted to bring it in like that and that was those really small moments. So Evolution is, I think, probably the most sort of punk sounding song on the record, I think. And obviously you have a punk icon singing on it so i'm gonna go was justin always planned for this song when written or was it once written that you thought yeah we need to get justin in yeah i how did i i don't remember if i knew that we were gonna do a guest vocalist when i wrote it no i didn't and it ended up working and then like I don't remember actually how that even came up. I guess, I mean, we've been like kind of throwing around like, oh, I guess we should get like, like we should have somebody, should have one of our friends do guest vocals on the track. Um, and like, I didn't, like this song was mostly written before I like decided on that. We had like a couple people in mind that we were like, oh, it'd be cool to have, like basically like we, were like it would be cool to have like yeah either Justin or Jesse from like uh from Stick Your Guns on the record and like we just kind of had those people like floating around that like oh like those would be like cool people to ask um and then when I wrote Evolution I I wrote it and then when that conversation came back up it became very clear that that this had to be the song for that um because like kind of accidentally because of the way that I wrote it um in that there's repeating phrases and alternating phrases. And I was like, oh, this actually works perfectly for having two vocalists. Um, and I did specifically want to do it like that because I don't love the whole like, oh, a vocalist comes in and does like one verse like type of thing. Like that's fine. It's just not specifically what I'm into. I really love it when you're getting to use the two voices as like two instruments. Um, that just seems more fun and interesting to me like, as as a songwriter. So I was like, cool, two contrasting voices, like singing similar repeating phrases back and forth. And uh, frankly, like obviously Justin saying, like, I was like, he is going to have the most vocal contrast to me. And this song is just so his ethos. Like the whole song is about giving a shit about the world around you and like having a heart and like 
taking responsibility for these things and like what is anti-flag about <laughs> like that that's just like i was like this is perfect and then when we brought the song to him we were like hey like interested in seeing if you'd be interested in this he was so amped on it and was like this is my jam and really wanted to do it so it just really worked out perfectly honestly <laughs> And in terms of like, as I mentioned, like for me, it feels like the most kind of punk song of, of yours, and it like it is, it comes in at a hundred miles an hour sort of thing. So for for you specifically, like again, not to diminish your talents whatsoever, but like it is super fast. So was that a challenge for you to kind of like, because even just looking at the lyrics, okay, some of it is split between you and Justin. But there's a lot of words to get in there in a short space of time. So was that a challenge for you? Yes. Uh, <laughs> especially, I'm a wordy bitch. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just got so bad at that. I have so much in here that's just trying to get out. Uh, so I have to, like, that's hard is kind of reining myself in uh, and trying to pace it so that it felt, yeah, not like a verbal onslaught um i knew i could do this track though because we pretty like uh we at the same time we recorded um a song for hopeless records uh they have a compilation songs that saved my life and so we did a cover of die for the government uh by anti-flag and it's sped up and is a hardcore song it's so fast that i had to get them to like slow it down for me to record it uh, because it was impossible. <laughs> so after that, I think that was a good warm up for evolution. And like, I didn't really have that much of a problem getting through it. Uh, so that was good. <laughs> but I had to get the reps in on, oh my God, on Die for the Government. That was brutal. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned obviously like having the repetition kind of um, worked, having sort of a second voice. And like because I think because obviously any sharp tooth fan is so used to hearing your voice, it kind of comes in quite sharp. Like being Justin, like because he's a recognizable voice of his own accord. Like the balance between you and him, and then like him being a male voice, was that specific that you wanted someone that was so ju juxtaposed uh, juxtaposed to you? Yes, I, I contrast, I think, is like, at, like, is how things are interesting and exciting. Um, and yeah, I loved how like his, his vocals like just sounded like that pure, like, like shouty punk thing. And I like wanted that. And I, and I thought it was interesting that that contrast and like he pointed it out immediately. He's like, you sound monstrous and terrifying and i was like i love that like i love that that song is a situation where like who's the woman who is sounding like the terrifying monster as opposed to like doing like the pretty melodic thing um so it definitely was it was a choice that i really liked because it flipped a thing that were a dynamic that we're used to seeing in a paradigm that we're comfortable with kind of on its head of like, oh, you have like the really like aggressive, like screaming vocal dude. And then you have like the girl who's the singer and it's pretty. Like, flip that shit. <laughs> and 
even though you mentioned like you're not specifically a fan of kind of guest vocalists coming in and doing a verse and that kind of being it obviously justin does have a verse in this song as well as the back and forth so again like did you specifically want him to do that one verse i thought it was good i thought that that was kind of the best way to divvy up um and make it feel and make like it feel balanced and even uh yeah it was like that ending part there's two verses and then i was like okay i do the one and justin does the one and and just kind of balances out and yeah and then having the alternating like during the i guess technically they're the choruses um it's not like like a little bit of an inverse of a song format than normal but yeah like having both of us on pretty much all of the parts of the song like in at least a different section felt important This is the only track that I'm going to ask about the specific title because I have no idea the reference. So 153, what can you explain? Everyone always asks about 153. Um, <laughs> I, lo I love it because that, that title is the most personal title. Um, and it is the thing that nobody, nobody would know. Um, which like is fun for me. And it's like kind of like a, this is my own little thing. And, you know, it gets to be mine. So, but I like telling people about it. I wrote 153 as a poem. Um, it was originally a poem and it was a poem that I wrote. Um, <clears throat> I had just finished work tour. Um, I just like, <laughs> like kind of broken up like with my boyfriend at the time, uh, like fairly recently prior, like good, amicable, everything fine. But uh, I just finished work tour and was kind of like, new like i don't know it was like all right what is this next chapter of existing going to be like after being on work tour for the first time and a girlfriend of mine needed help moving to boston from delaware so she would house my band all the time so i helped her move and when i helped her move uh i helped her move in with her uh brother and i'd never met him before and uh that weekend i ended up just like really 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 intensely connecting with this person who was intensely political and intensely radicalized and uh like just their entire ethos was like making the world a better place fuck what it what anyone says about you you do you like and live your best life and change the goddamn planet and Connecting with a person who felt like all, like those are kind of core parts of who I am and just be having all of those parts be so validated by somebody who also felt so passionate about creating global change and, and having global positive impact and cares about human rights and activism was so emboldening and empowering on so many levels, both like personal and like professional and just getting to connect with a person who like got it and like gets that like yeah, I, I will fucking die for my beliefs because that's who I am. And having that celebrated in like such a dramatic way inspired me to write that poem. And uh, that person ended up becoming my significant other of the last almost- Oh, wow. Two years. <laughs> um, yeah, and so 153 was the house number of the house that they moved into. Uh, oh, that's cool. Moved her up there. 
And so it's about the story, it's about that story and like that galvanizing in my, like that galvanizing of myself. And it just, I needed a big ass beater, fun feminist anthem, like, I'm gonna do me, you gotta deal with it. And that's what 153 felt like. And I wrote it at a time in my life when I needed to tap into that. And it like, I don't know, it was like a rediscovering of some of like my favorite parts of myself. And that's one of my favorite songs on the record. <laughs> Do, does, does your partner know that it's around those kind of things? Oh, yeah. Oh, he yeah. totally knows. Yep. And he loves it. He thinks it's great. <laughs> he thinks it's hilarious and he thinks it's great. Um, we've been planning a music video for it. Uh, so I've been like giving him all like the little tidbits of like, like visuals and stuff we're going to do for it. And he's just so stoked. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. So. And you may be able to talk about this, but like musically, this song sounds really kind of like, so in my note, I've written it down as 153 equals every time I die song. Cause it sounds yeah, like. I knew it. <laughs> But what was that influence that the, the, the guys were pulling from? We, I mean, we pretty shameless, I I pretty shamelessly hero worship every time I die. I think that they are like one of the greatest metal bands to ever exist, just in how they carry themselves as musicians, how they interact in the, like the industry as a whole their approach to their art. I just, I think that they are genius. And I think that like, they're like heroes of mine and both sonically and from a band perspective. So any, like, I mean, if you've listened to Clever Girl, it's, I think that the, the every time I die influence is, is pretty noticeable on like certain tracks, obviously Clever Girl being one of them. And I was like, I kind of wanted my, I kind of wanted my like, my clever girl of the record and this is my like and that's what 153 wanted to be it was like this needs to be the bad bitch anthem this needs to be like the the feminist like fuck you i'll do what i want song and there is no more more like fuck you i'm gonna do what i want band than every time i die so like that vibe lance had written the song and it was called Cletus, which is hilarious. Uh, he'd written this song. It was very clearly like, this is the E-Tid like, song. And I wrote the poem for 153. And one day when I was just like driving around listening to instrumental tracks and brainstorming, uh, Cletus came on and I was like, oh, this is 153. This is 153. Okay. And then I pull out the lyrics and I start putting them in and fitting them and it was just like this is it this is it this is the eated banger track like I wanted to have that werewolf feel that new black feel like that was very much just like irreverent is how I think of that song just like irreverent and like party girl song it's an irreverent song it's a yeah I love that song <laughs> And because of you, you mentioned that it was a poem before it was a song. So what's the poem called 153 as well? My poems generally. So like it just was a poem. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, so I it didn't have a title for a long time. It was just like, this, these are the words that I put on this song. And I knew that I wanted it to, to nod 
to that day and that moment. And then I was like, and I also knew that I kind of wanted it to be ambiguous <laughs> so that I'd have fun shit to talk about in interviews. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I did know that I kind of wanted a little bit of ambiguity because that's, that's fun. Mm. Mm. And just finally on this song, obviously you mentioned like the, the whole kind of premise of it was having this connection with person and, and sort of galvanizing your own sort of thoughts and, the characters that built you and again just one specific line that I wanted to dig out like it's maybe not necessarily something for you to comment on but that I kind of picked up on was the line I'll die for my beliefs way like towards the end as well where you have that prolonged scream as well I thought that was really poignant that it was that line especially especially now that I know the background to it as well it makes that scream even more kind of like hard-hitting it's my favorite scream I've ever screamed there we that go. was one take. That was the first take too. Wow. Uh, so I'm, yeah, dude, I'm so proud of that shit. <laughs> like we, I like kind of knew that I wanted, I'd been practicing the song with that basically like the, like that I'm going to fucking die. And then it's sinking down slowly into this like, duh, duh, duh. and yeah, I knew I had that like all in my head and was really excited to get to do that. Uh, but yeah, uh, for me, and also this is like kind of worth noting, uh, this is, I also jokingly refer to this as the hoe track uh, because uh, there is some uh, somewhat like veiled, not thinly veiled, I don't know, uh, like sexual imagery uh, in there that I've actually never talked about in an interview, which I think is kind of funny. Uh, but the like, um, call me your enemy, impale myself upon a loving sword, like, that's a oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> it's a dick. No. <laughs> Why am I this way? Um, but like in so, and this is from my background. Uh, I studied opera and musical theater for a long time. Uh, the the words to die in opera and musical theater do not, or specifically opera, uh, the concept of to die doesn't always mean literally dying. It very often in operatic literature is a reference to orgasming. Um, so oh, wow. that, yeah. So, hey, now, now, you know, so like, yeah, like there's a lot of songs where it will be like to die, like, like, like to see, to touch, to kiss, to die. They're not dying. They're coming. Uh, so, so having a, like that double entendre there was really fun for me because it's like yeah I'm like very galvanized in who I am as an activist and like yeah like you can't fucking change me so fucking kill me if you don't like it but it also is like a yeah like I'm like gonna you know I'm, I'm gonna be me and sometimes I'm a fuck and it'll be fine like whatever like <laughs> so that's yeah uh, that is now you know the southern strategy this one i thought was quite interesting because for me this feels really kind of rhythmic in terms of you matching the music so throughout the record like i don't mean this to be like uh decomp like taking your music apart but like it feels very much like the music and Lauren. That's not a bad thing, but th that's just kind of how it kind of comes across with it. But this is like 
where the two of you kind of like for me it's like a meeting point of like you're crossing over and you're working in tandem so did you purposely want your vocal pattern to match what was going on with the rhythm of the music uh, it's interesting you mention that because I do yeah I do a lot of weaving typically um of like this is this is like we have the song and I'm like doing things like on the song but this yeah it does go like way more in depth and uh like anchors to specific like rhythmic parts of the song um I when I wrote this song like I was feeling yeah working with the beat of it felt very relevant because I was approaching this song in the way that I think of like Rage Against the Machine song or Stray from the Path song which are very like like the rhythm is almost like the first component of both of those bands like sonic aspect is like it's like the rhythm and the vocal thing in kind of in my assessment um but both of those bands kind of play like directly on like the beat of whatever interesting thing the rhythm is doing and because this song is really uh it has a lot of like rhythmic variety um playing off of that just like felt intuitive it was just like yeah this song this song is about the beat of the song um and like the feel and i wanted to work in the context of that because that just that just felt like intuitive i think it's quite funny that you say that you were kind of channeling rage because this is also kind of the most political song in in the record so i don't know was that a case of going hand in hand or is that just kind of a happy coincidence um it was a little bit of both um i the, the working title for the song and like the way that we kind of write like as a band um sometimes our working titles are like inside jokes or just dumb shit like cletus <laughs> like just dumb shit like that and sometimes they're like lance will throw a working title on something um that like he was like thinking about or reading about at the time when he wrote the song and it just so happens that like the southern strategy uh was what I kind of wanted the song to be about anyway. And it weirdly was like, so that's the working title was the Southern strategy. That was not a title that I gave it after writing it. I was like, oh, well, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about anyway. The first part of the song that I wrote um, and that also like thinks exactly with what you were saying, like rhythmically was that they don't give a fuck about you. Um, and I think that that is kind of the clearest uh, demonstration of that motif in the song of the doing something directly with the beat. Uh, and yeah, and that always, that part always kind of felt very Rage Against the Machine to uh, That, like that, they don't give a fuck about you, da, 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 da. Like that rhythmic approach to something felt like Stray, it felt like Rage. And I already was writing this song about specifically that. I started with that line and because I just was getting so frustrated. I'm like, how, I do not understand how so many people on who like are right wing people, how they are. Because I'm like, do y'all not know that like, you're literally voting against your own interests. They don't care about, they don't care. They don't care about you. And just that like, Frustration is that, like, please stop voting for 
with these people. They actively don't give a shit about you. Like, we do. <sighs> and just, like, that refrain repeating in my head all the time when I would read things about, like, like, how does this demographic exist? I don't understand. I just want them to know that there's people who actually do care. And, yeah, I was, like, so the way that it came together, it, like, I felt like it was going to have that vibe just based on it sonically. It was going to have a stray or a rage vibe and that they don't give a fuck about you. And then that just ended up getting flushed out further in, the, in like the verses of the songs of the like staying on the beat because it's really interesting and strange and like following that. And it made for like a really cool writing experience. And not to go on too much of a, a tangent, but obviously political results recently in your country what's your kind of view on things at the moment oh i mean like like shit's still fucked like <laughs> let's not get ahead of ourselves here shit is still fucked um it's definitely really encouraging uh to know that there is a person who at the very least cares very much about the optics of what they do um being in a position of power uh especially in regards to like like, the biggest problem, in my opinion, with Donald Trump was that Donald Trump didn't give a fuck about what anybody else thinks or feels. Um, and so, therefore, was just this chaotic, evil thing. Now we have lawful, neutral to evil uh, in. But the good thing about lawful, <laughs> neutral to evil people also, don't you love that I'm talking politics in D&D terms? I love it. Uh, <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons, our political system. Uh, <laughs> and like, so they care about appearances. So it matters to the Democrats to appear as though they give a shit about people. And so they will make decisions that reflect that. But regardless of whether or not that's their motivation, like, I mean, we all fucking know that, like, basically all establishment politicians care about lining their wallets. There are a handful of exceptions to these rules, but that shakes out regardless of political party. So let's just be honest with ourselves in that regard. But having people who really care about looking like they care is good for us. So I'm, I'm very, very here for this administration, if for no other reason, honestly. I know Kamala Harris is a fucking cop. I don't fuck with cops. But can we just acknowledge the fact that like Joe Biden is about to turn 79? And so that means that by the end of his first term, he's going to be 83, which means that by the end of his second term, if he stays a second term, he's going to be 87. Can we think about this? the ruler of the free world, that's not happening. So what is going to happen is that regardless of what people want to think or admit, I'm pretty sure that we just actually elected our first female black president in the U.S. And <laughs> yeah. if that's the outcome of this, that's the greatest fucking thing ever. And I don't care if she's a cop, honestly, because that's such a, that in and of itself is so much more of a win than any one thing that that person could do. Um, like that is just such a win for like the black community and for women that, yeah, I'll take, I'll take Joe Biden, like, and his bullshit. If it means that I don't have to have Trump and it means 
that I'm probably going to end up with a black female president in a couple of years because how am I going to be able to keep doing a job? I don't understand. How? I wouldn't want my grandma to be president. Like, <laughs> come on. She's lovely, but like, no. Uh, Who are we dealing with? <laughs> The penultimate track, um, MPDB, I did get that right. I prefer calling it his full track name, so Manic Pixie Dream Bitch. Obviously, for me, when I saw the title, obviously I kind of got the connotations that it has to cinema and film. So is that kind of what, obviously, the idea of, of a Manic Pixie Dream Bitch in terms of cinema is the kind of like, the quote-unquote crazy girlfriend who's kooky and funny and things like that so but the lyrics i don't know for me don't necessarily match that image so can you explain where it kind of comes into it for me the concept of manic pixie dream girl hinges on like that so that kind of first part is like part one i think of it for me like the oh like the trope of like She's like quirky and fun and weird and like, ah. But the, like the reason that trope kind of like exists is because the whole purpose of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl in the context of a story is not to be a person. It is to be the partner of a person. Right. There's no Manic Pixie Dream Girl movie. Uh, the trope isn't about just a girl being that way. It's about her relation to a man. And that's what the song is about for me. It's about how like that kind of paradigm of like the, oh, he's like the really like sad and like he has problems. Like, oh my God, we've all seen Garden State. Like it's basically, this, <laughs> like we've all seen Garden State. We've all seen, I don't know, the parks of being a wallflower, whatever. Uh, it's basically that like, oh, this is like the quirky girl, but she's like free spirited and she's going to help him find himself and fix his problems. And he's going to like, and he like, she's his story arc. And that sucks. <laughs> and the fact that that's a trope sucks, uh, that like there's a, the woman who exists to give the man a through line and helps him become a better person. Like, fuck you, sir. I'm not your fucking toolbox for fixing you. I am my own complete human being who exists on her own and you can fix your own damn self <laughs> because there's kind of like that expectation of like the like sad lonely boy like it's the girlfriend of the girl who's supposed to like fix him and uh that's what I talk about and I think that you get more of in the lyrics is like the the like I'm not your fucking mother I don't exist to fix you and that expectation in relationships is fucking not okay. Like, like I'm not your mom. And hence the mother dearest, won't you fix me? Or uh, don't you miss me grown ass men who all want fixing. Um, and then I'm maternal extortion. I'm the womb, you're my abortion. Well, so that uh, was the, that was the lyric that I was going to pick up from. Cause obviously before you've kind of given me the, the reasoning for the song that was the the line that kind of stood out to me is not that it's out of place but i didn't under know the, obviously the context of the song but now it makes sense yeah so basically it's it is like the 
the removal of a parasite from your life and because that's kind of how it feels when you are in a relationship like that um like you feel like you are like carrying a parasite that has this expectation of you to like teach it to be a person and i'm like i'm i don't exist to teach you how to be a person or to be a good boyfriend or to be a better man or a better activist or whatever i don't exist for those purposes and that's not to say that like you know relationships aren't formed on like both people mutually contributing aspects of those things to each other but when there isn't that contribution when it is basically like a take 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 situation then there's a lot of problems and that's why that trope exists so it's a like just referencing that in the context of uh situations in my life where I've just been expected to do all of the emotional labor for every facet of it. And then when I need like support or anything, it's like, oh, it's not there because that isn't convenient for you to have to do right now. Uh, so yeah, like not a way to live. Um, and every dynamic is gonna have times when one person needs more support and the other person needs more support, but like, Oh, there's got to be some like mutual understanding there that like it's a give and take. Closing out the record, um, you've mentioned it briefly, but nevertheless, obviously, like now I know a bit more of the story of the album. It's kind of making sense that, as you say, like with life on a razor's edge and then this kind of bookending everything mm -hmm. but to take it in isolation like this feels like the most kind of like upbeat and uplifting song on the record and i'm gonna guess for obvious reasons but was that kind of like the intention like not to say this is the end of the story because i'm gonna guess there's more to be told but was that as you say like this kind of like realization of where the story had gone so you wanted it to not be bleak 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 and then uplifting but like that kind of positive like light at the end of the tunnel sort of um yeah so the way that i kind of structured the record i wanted um the front of the record has uh, is more what i kind of think of as like being problem heavy like going hey this is a problem that's going on in our society this is a problem that's going on in our society like it's more kind of pointing out things. And I kind of find the second half of the record being a little bit more, having more agency and having more power, like internal power to it. Like I feel capable of confronting this person. I feel capable of addressing these people and imparting a message onto them. I feel like it feels like there's a forward path for the second half of the record. And that was that was intentional um, because again, with the turning point of the gray, uh, that like in the story for me is like the, the is a reclaiming and is a, is like a, a fostering of agency. And then you move through the rest of the record kind of in that space of more confidence and more agency. And so, 
and like hope basically like i feel like like yeah like the first half of the record is pretty is kind of bleak when you think about it it's like there's all these problems in the metalcore scene i have all these mental health problems like there are these terrible people in the world who do shitty things and like but like he what's a girl to do you know uh and the and like the switch for me is at the gray of going yeah like oh i'm gonna do something i can do something oh i'm capable oh okay cool i like i can stand on my own two feet i can make these things happen and so when you move forward through like like the southern strategy like feeling like capable of like reaching people and when and like in 153 obviously is like very much like a song about agency and like feeling like solid in yourself and like learning who you are um like there's the hope that comes from moving from a place where you can only see problems to starting to be able to find solutions is that's just that's like the whole thing is like going from like like bleakness to hope and i wanted the record to leave on a hopeful note because that, that's like the through line of that journey for me is like going from a place of, of despair and feeling like i don't have options to a place of feeling hopeful and like confident and like like i can move forward and so that is very much how that song structure or is structured and is supposed to function like it is supposed to be like the hopeful jumping off place like hmm. and well because like as you say it's that kind of like building of hope and things and, and again like to kind of quote your lyrics but actually the one that like in the sort of like opening sort of half of it whereas um the darkness touched me um touched me with her hand she kissed my forehead whispered to me maybe it's not time to meet me yet um, maybe that's what hurt the most, not even total death could even bear to hold me close. Like, if you took that in isolation, that's quite horrible, but... It's dark. Yeah, but to go with the upbeat sound, like, sounds that's being created with the music and, like, the guitars and the drums, and obviously where the song ends up, have you found that people have, not necessarily related to those specific lines, but the reason I picked them out is because it is that kind of like people have been in that dark place where like as horrible as it sounds like for them death is the way out but like they're like you hope that there is like the end of the tunnel for people that they'll get through those dark times so have you found that people have been able to relate to this song in those ways hugely um i would see like people would post all the time like okay this is too real right now <laughs> And I'm just like, they'll do that. I'm like, yo, same. Because like, whatever real, like if they're like experiencing from those lyrics, like that was my real. Like that, like I wanted to write about it in that way because that was the way that I experienced it. And like, yeah, those feelings literally of, of like, like, let's just be frank. Like the song is about like wanting to kill yourself and not killing yourself. <laughs> like. And that's kind of honestly what a lot of like the record is about. It's about like finding the hope in like absolutely bleak, hopeless places to be able to like move forward and like feel fucking good about moving forward and not just like, I guess I won't die. Uh, 
So yeah, I've had a lot of people reach out um, in that regard. And um, it is, I mean, I think it is pretty like clear that like, it's like talking about wanting to know about. So, and I think if people appreciate like anytime people are like open about that, uh, especially when the, like for me, I don't just, I don't just want to write a song about like, <laughs> someone wanted to kill themselves and not could do anything with that that feels like irresponsible to me <laughs> and like also like disingenuous because like you know I, I have found reasons to live and like those that feels important and being able to impart that up upon people feels important too that like you can be in that place and a lot of us often are but you can come out and there there are paths forward so yeah I've had a lot of people um, like reach out and connect with me in that regard. And there's, it, and like, frankly, it just highlights the fact that there's more, there is a need for people to be talking frankly about these things, because uh, they're things that everyone is thinking about. And obviously the very last thing we hear from the record are the lines you screaming, nevertheless, I exist. And again, now knowing the the sort of content of of the record like that line makes sense but the reason like i pick it out specifically is that that is the finishing line of the record and i think like if you take every subject that you're putting into this record whether it be feminism whether it be talking about sort of like sexual assaults whether it be politics whether it be about the hardcore scene like it's kind of like an whether it's you talking specifically or somebody listening to this thinking, oh no, yeah, I do exist in that space. Like, did you want that specific line to be the end of the record? Yes. Um, I think that a problem, like a huge problem in our society is people pretending that because something uh, like isn't visible to them that it doesn't exist. Um, or that because a problem isn't obvious to them or isn't explained to them that it's not real or that somebody's lived experiences because they haven't had them aren't real. And so much of what Sharptooth does is focused on representation and the validation of our, of the lived experiences specifically of marginalized people, but frankly for everybody. And there is something incredibly powerful in in like standing before your music scene your world your country whatever um and saying i as who i am i exist i am real and i exist here and that matters because it does it matters when somebody gets on stage who looks like me and says i exist here and that needs to be acknowledged and it matters when a person of color does the same thing. It matters when a queer person like me does that. It matters anytime it isn't somebody that you're used to seeing, taking up space, claiming that space and demanding your acknowledgement of their lived experience and their existence is an incredibly powerful act. And I think that that's at the root of Sharptooth as a whole is drawing attention to the lived experiences of the marginalized and like it's like honestly the 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 nevertheless like i exist is kind of like the like in spite of all of this fucking bullshit i'm still here 
my experience is valid, you will pay attention to it. Like, I don't think there's anything much more powerful as a marginalized person than being able to do that. And I, I mean, that's why there's like phrases and colloquialisms. Like I almost think you know, think of it like in the, like we're here, we're queer, get used to it. Like that's how it feels like to me. It's like, I exist in this space, fucking deal with it. Especially like in being in a music scene where there's so many people who hella don't fucking want us there. It's like too bad. You just pretending we don't exist doesn't make it stop. Just like you pretending that like queer people don't exist doesn't make us go away. Like, and like you pretending that like people of color experiences don't exist. Like, nope, they still do. They all still do. <laughs> and so that was why ending it that way like felt powerful personally. And then also just as like what we do as a band and like as a statement almost like to like our fans like hey like you're fucking here with us and like people gotta fucking deal with it <laughs> what's your relationship with the record now that it's been recorded it's out in the world other people have had time to digest it like how do you kind of see transitional forms now that because there's always the trope of like until it's released it's the band's record but once it's released it's the fans so how do you kind of feel with it now um i'm so glad that it's out there and getting to see like our fans interact with the songs kind of in the ways that you were talking about like seeing like getting a ton of feedback about nevertheless uh getting it like people being so amped on 153 and I, and it's really exciting because it feels like i'm getting to share yeah this thing that i love and that i'm super excited about and like all the little weird things about it with people who are also just as excited and just getting to connect with them about that and is so fun especially like I'm now having the fun experience of, because I got a lot more comfortable writing much more ambiguously in this record and going, fuck you, I don't care if people understand me, or face value, whatever. Uh, <laughs> they can go read the lyrics and do what they will. Uh, I've been like getting to answer questions kind of like yours um, about like the less subtle things and getting to talk to my fans about that and have them be, what does this part mean? Does this mean this? And like, that's just so fun. And I get like, I don't need a thing to stay mine because I just don't like it will always be there will always be parts of that that are so uniquely and deeply intrinsically mine that sharing it with everybody else will never feel like I'm losing anything it only feels like a gain it's great I love it